On Thursday, May 29th, my family and I were sitting in a theater for a show about the Monsters, Inc. movie at Disney World. And we were having a great time. It was very funny. I even got to be featured as that guy. For those of you who have been there, know what that's about. Got my face on the screen. Everybody there got to see me. It was, you know, it's cool. On our way out, couldn't find Marita. We didn't know where she went. And finally we got outside, and she comes rushing up and pulls me away from the kids and from Granny. And we get off out, and she informs me that my brother has been in a terrible motorcycle accident. They're not sure if he's going to make it. If he makes it, they're not sure that they're going to be able to keep his legs. And we got to get home fast. And it was a pretty traumatic event. Linda and I got back to Chattanooga about 9.30 that night. And by the time we got there, they said he was critical but stable. By Saturday, however, they had him out of the ICU. Now he's sitting up. He's had most of his surgeries. They're starting to get him back to where he can eat again and, and start the rehab. And the doctors are saying he's going to have a full recovery. And frankly, in my mind, it's just amazing. And over the past week and a half, especially those first couple of days, when we were just sitting there at the hospital with really nothing to do, a lot of thinking about what was going on and some lessons that either we could say that I learned or that were impressed upon me, that I were reiterated in our lives just through this whole series of events. And tonight, I know it's the second Sunday, and I know that usually what we would do is have our question and answer, but I just want to do something a little bit different tonight. I just want to share with you the five, five of the biggest lessons that I got out of this entire situation with my brother. And I realize that he's not out of the woods yet. There can always be a setback, and we don't know what's going to happen. But just what's, what's gone on over the past week and a half, just some things that I've been thinking about that I'd like to share with you tonight. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we praise your name, and we're thankful because you are with us, and you have promised never to forsake us. We're thankful, Father, because you love us and you take care of us. And we know that no matter what difficulties we go through, you're there with us holding our hand, and you'll carry us through and on to heaven for eternity. And Father, we pray that your hand of mercy would continue to be with my brother, but also with with all the other folks that are connected with this congregation that we know of who are sick or having procedures done, we know that there are so many. We ask that your hand of blessing be with each of them. Father, help us above all things to glorify and honor you and to serve you so that in the end, when we come to your throne, we might be able to hear, enter in, good and faithful servant. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen very first lesson, and again, you know, I say these are lessons that I've learned. I guess these are lessons that I knew already. I mean, these are things that I knew already, most of them, but just that situations like this drive them home and at least help us focus on them and, and relearn or reemphasize and just bring to mind some things that God's pointed out. Because the very first one is that, that we are weak, but He is strong. Last Thursday, from, the, from about 2.30 on to about 9.30, is we're trying to figure out how on how on earth we're all going to get home quickly, one of the things that, that just really caused me a problem was the fact that I realized, you know, we're rushing to get to Chattanooga and we're trying to get there as fast as possible, but, you know, when I get there, there's not anything I can do. It's not like my showing up at the hospital is suddenly going to fix everything. It's not like I can turn the time back and keep the wreck from happening. It's not like I can reach out and lay my hands on them and knit the bones back together and heal the organs and stop the bleeding. 
I'm powerless over that. There's not a single thing I can do about that. And sometimes I think that God allows those kind of situations to happen to remind us of how truly weak and powerless we are. Because those are the situations that drive us to our knees and cause us to realize that really I can't do anything that really matters. God is the only one that can do those things. Paul talked in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about God teaching him that lesson. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 it says, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We don't know what this thorn in the flesh is, but whatever it was, it was something that drove Paul to his knees, the recognition that he couldn't do anything about it. The recognition that the only one who could do anything about it was God. And what that did was that humbled him. And it caused him to recognize the grace that God offered and how important that grace is and his need for that grace. And the recognition that in reality the only thing, the only time that he is strong is when he's recognizing how weak he is. And I just can't help but think about the passage that I know you've heard me use so often over the past couple of years in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 24, where he talked about his struggle against sin when he was trying to be in control, when he was trying to take charge and beat the sin. In Romans chapter 7, verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, that I am in the flesh, sold under sin. I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the laws of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What I think Paul's talking about here is when he was trying to be in control, when he was trying to have the power and conquer sin and beat Satan, he recognized that he couldn't do it. Every time he failed, it was only by recognizing that strength is in God. That he was weak, he couldn't overcome, but God could through him. It was only when he realized how weak he was and allowed God to be in control that he would have victory. Think about Moses. I think he's one of the greatest examples of this. When Moses just supposed that everyone would know that, that God was going to grant deliverance through him, what happened? They rejected him, and he ran into the wilderness, fleeing for his life, afraid of failing. But 40 years later, after he had spent 40 years living in a, in a way of life that was anathema to his upbringing as a shepherd, 
This amazing burning bush appears to him and God says, I want you to let my people go. What was Moses' response then? Who am I? <laughs> Listen, I can't do I tried already once. I, I can't do this. I'm not the right guy. You need somebody stronger. That was when, by God's strength, he was able to accomplish it. Do you see that? It wasn't when Moses thought he was great. It wasn't when Moses thought by his power somehow that God was going to use him because he was uniquely suited. It was only when he said, I can't do this, I'm not the one, that he actually was uniquely suited to accomplish great things for God. We're weak, but he is strong. We need to remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We can't beat that. We're just not that good. But God can. We're weak. But God is strong. And when we surrender control of our lives to God, sacrificing ourselves and crucifying ourselves with Jesus Christ, as it says in Galatians 2 and verse 20, and we simply allow Jesus to live through us by surrendering to His control. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think by the power working within us. Think about that. He is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think by the power working in us. It's not just something He's going to do. It's something He's going to do by His power working in us. When I am weak, then I am strong. John chapter 14 and verse 10 talks about how Jesus lived in this life. In John chapter 14 and verse 10, Jesus said, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. You see his point? I mean, here was Jesus, God in the flesh, God the Son. And He says, I'm not in control of my own life. The Father is. If that's the way Jesus lives, how much more should we? I am weak, but He is strong. We learned that when we were kids in that song. But it's not just a kid's song. We are weak. But He is strong. The second thing that I learned is that God really does help us. So we need to acknowledge Him. God really does help. So we need to acknowledge Him. And I recognize, of course, that there are probably even people within this assembly who can look at some loved one who got in a wreck or had some traumatic experience happen and prayed and prayed and prayed, but they still died. And so, because of that, they might think, well, I don't know that God helps. But, but that being said, all I can say is that Thursday at 2 o'clock, I got a call that said my brother was going to die, and now he's in the hospital, and they're saying he's going to fully recover. 
And I just can't help but think about James chapter 1 and verse 17 within that context. In James chapter 1 and verse 17, where it says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift comes from God. I'm not saying that God grants all our requests. But He does listen. And you know, it's, it's not really amazing that God ever says no to anything we ever ask. To me, it's amazing that He ever says yes. And God really does help us. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11 says, If you then being evil know how to give gifts, give good gifts, how much more does your Father in heaven give good gifts to His children who ask? He wants to give us good gifts. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7 says we can cast our anxieties upon Him. Why? Because He cares for us. He does care. He does give good gifts. He does help. And that's why we need to follow the advice of Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 6. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. In all your ways acknowledge Him. In everything we do, we need to be acknowledging God because God really is helping us. But you know, it's easy to do that when something amazing happens. It's easy to do that when something incredible happens. When somebody like my brother gets in a, in a wreck and it looks like they're going to die and they come back from death's door, it's amazing and how easily we say, oh, God had a hand in that and, and what a great God we serve. And we talk about the power of prayer and the power of the God to whom we pray. And we talk about all that and we acknowledge Him in that. But what about just every day? I mean, it's easy for us to look at Chris as he's in the hospital there and say, you know, God is great. God is good. He had a hand in that. But what about all of us here who got in our cars and drove to this assembly and didn't get in a wreck? Do we acknowledge God in that? What about all the folks that last Thursday were riding on a motorcycle and didn't get in a wreck? Do we acknowledge that? Do we acknowledge God in that? What about the air that we're breathing every minute of every day? What about the food that we got to eat today? What about the clothes that we're wearing? What about the houses in which we live? What about the cars in which we drive? All those mundane and normal things that we just take for granted. Do we acknowledge God in all of that? The fact is, without God's help, we wouldn't have any of that. He really is helping us. Makes me think about a story. I think I might have shared it before, but I'll share it again. These two old friends that hadn't seen each other for a long time met on the street one day. And, and, and the one just looked miserable. And so his friend said to him, Oh, friend, what on earth is, has happened to you that you look so miserable? And he says, Well, about three weeks ago, my uncle died. And the guy said, Oh, I am so sorry. No, you don't understand. He left me $100,000. And the friend said, Well, there's a silver lining in every cloud. The other guy said, no, you don't understand. About two weeks ago, my grandfather died. Oh, that is just awful. I'm, no, you don't understand. He left me $500,000. Well, even in difficult times, God provides blessing. No, you just don't understand. Last week, my father died. Oh, I know that had to be terrible for you. No, you don't understand. He left me a million dollars. So finally the guy says, no, I just don't get it. I mean, I know that it had to be hard to face all this death, but it looks like throughout all of it, God has been blessing you greatly. Why are you so miserable? He said, this week, nothing. 
Sometimes we just take things for granted. If you allow something to happen positive uh, a couple times in a row and, and folks start to take it for granted, they expect it every time. I mean, what would happen for those of you who've received one the past couple of years if your company decided not to give you your year-end bonus? The fact is, for most of us, bonuses are just that. They're bonuses. They're not something that's part of the contract. It's a gift. It's mercy. The, the, the employer's not bound to give that to us, but they've done it for the past two or three years. What if they decided not to this year? We kind of take that for granted. It's just supposed to happen. Every morning we wake up and there's air that we breathe. What if we woke up one morning and it didn't happen that way? Are we taking the n- normal things for granted? Or are we acknowledging God in all our ways? Because God really is helping us. He could take it all away. And then where would we be? God really is helping us. We need to acknowledge Him. The third thing that we need to do is just live one day at a time. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think to myself, you know, today might be the day that I get a call and find out that my brother Brad in Afghanistan has been shot and died. I think that almost every day. Except for these two weeks, because now he's home. On the 18th, he'll go back, and I'll start thinking that again. But there wasn't a single day that I thought, you know what, today's going to be the day that I might get a call that my brother Christopher's been in a motorcycle accident and is dead. Not a single day that I ever thought that was going to happen. You know what that teaches me is that Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 is, are absolutely true. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battles of the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. We don't know when it's going to happen. It might happen tonight. When we're done tonight, Marie and I are going to go home, we're going to pack up the car, and then we're going to head to Florence, Alabama, because I'm supposed to be preaching there this week, and I, I might not make it. I mean, I know that we're driving in that you know, urban assault vehicle, that uh, suburban, but that's no guarantee. We don't get to force our way into tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. Time and chance. Overtake us all. And I know we've heard that warning again and again and again, and we've lived another day again and again and again. And so so that kind of warning rolls off our backs. But this is something we've got to learn. We are not promised tomorrow. James chapter 4, beginning at about verse 13. James chapter 4. And verse 13 says, Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Excuse me. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. So we're a vapor. We're a mist. We can't force our way into tomorrow. We can't boast about what we're going to do tomorrow. We need to say, if the Lord wills, because God's the one who can control that, not us. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. 
Tomorrow we may be in the hospital fighting for our lives. Or we might be like the acquaintance of my brother-in-law and sister-in-law down in Birmingham. Her name's Chelsea Rowe. A couple weeks ago, I think it was back in April, she told her friends, I'm going to go off with my friend here on a motorcycle ride. We'll be back in ten minutes. And within ten minutes, she was dead. She couldn't even boast about what she was going to do eleven minutes later. James said, if you know the right thing to do, do it. Don't wait. You're not promised tomorrow. If you're sitting here and saying, you know, I'll become a child of God. I'll start serving Him tomorrow. I'll start doing all these things He wants me to do tomorrow. You're not promised tomorrow. You don't get to force your way into tomorrow. Start today. But having said that, I'd like for us to look at the other side of it. Because the reality is, to me, there's something comforting about knowing that I'm not promised tomorrow. And I know that probably sounds weird. But there actually really is something comforting to me about that. I don't know about you, but I know what I face. And sometimes I get a little discouraged and a little distressed when I start thinking about the fact, man, I've got to live the rest of my life purely. I've got to fight lust, and I've got to fight materialism and greed and outbursts of anger, and I've got to try to be pure and righteous and holy for the rest of my life. And there are times, brethren, I just sit back and think, I can't do that. There is just no way. I am not going to make it. And if I start trying to think about having to be holy for the next 10 years or the next 10 months or the next 10 weeks or even just the next 10 days, there's sometimes I just say, why even bother trying? I am not going to make it. But when I realize that I'm not promised the next 10 years, the next 10 months, the next 10 weeks or the next 10 days, I've got today, just do it today. By the grace of God, just do it today. I can do that. One day at a time. You know, the reality is I don't have to be pure ten years from now. I don't have to be pure ten weeks from now. I don't have to be pure ten days from now. I don't have to be pure tomorrow. I just have to be pure today. I just have to serve God today. And I can do that. You can do that. I think that's what Jesus was pointing out in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34. He said, Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I don't know how many times when I'm all worried about what I'm going to be doing ten years from now, that that bogs me down so much today that I mess today up. Now, I don't, I don't think this passage is saying that we're not allowed to have any goals and that, that we don't ever look to the future, but it just demonstrates that we've got today, and that's all we've got, so why not just live today? And why allow my worries about tomorrow to mess up how I'm living today when I might not even get to tomorrow? If I just take it one day at a time, and God allows me to live for ten years, then at that time, I'll be able to reap the benefits of having lived for Him ten years one day at a time. But if I just live one day at a time and he decides to take me tonight, then I'll be ready to meet him because my worries about ten years from now didn't mess up my walk with him today. You see the point? Let's just take it one day at a time. We're not even promised tomorrow. Why would we let worries about tomorrow mess up our today? Number four, what a family. What a family. You all remember I did a sermon like this on what lessons I learned from Shay. 
This is one of the lessons I learned back then. Maybe I need things like this to happen on a repeated basis because every time things like this happen, this is a lesson that I get. And I guess I need the repeated reminder, what a family. I just can't tell you how many people I've heard about all over the United States that are praying for my brother. I've heard of entire congregations that had special prayers for him in their assemblies last Sunday. There are thousands of Christians that are praying for him right now. That's just amazing. I even got a note from someone in Dublin, Ireland. Because of the Internet and the connections that we have over the Internet, found out about it, and they're praying for him over there. How phenomenal that is. What a family that we've got. This is what Jesus promised in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, I think it's about verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, Mark 10, 29, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He promised us a hundredfold mothers, brothers, sisters, children. Even if we had to be separated from our physical families because of our walk with God. He says when you come into Christ, you get this huge family that's there for you. And they really are. It's really phenomenal. What an amazing thing it is. I think, I've heard that it's Ebon, that when somebody talks, you know, they find out about connections, and, oh, I know so-and-so, and, and, and you know so-and-so, and, and uh, listen, Kurt and Michelle know everybody. They've, they've lived in like 25 towns over the past 10 years. I think they know everybody in the brotherhood almost. You can't go somewhere if somebody doesn't say, oh, do you know Kurt and Michelle Alford? It's insane. But, you know, oh, it's a small family. Or, excuse me, it's a small world. No, it's a big family. Brother Bowman says. And I think that's something we need to recognize. It is a big family. We've got a great family. But you know, I don't think God has given us this family just so we can sit back and bask in the glory of a large family, just so we can be thankful for the large family. He's given us a family so we can lean on them. He's given us a family so we can lean on them. Why are we afraid to do that? Why are we afraid to ask each other for help? That's what we're here for. Would you have a problem asking your physical brother for some help? Most of us wouldn't. Why would we have a problem asking a spiritual brother for help? Well, they might look down on me. They might think less of me. I need to be able to do this on my own. And because of that, we isolate and get caught up in our own world and we don't even get the greatest amount of help that God has offered in that each other. That's what James 5 is talking about. In James 5, beginning at verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person avails much. He's talking about relying on one another. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's what we're here for, is to bear one another's burdens and to help each other. You ever notice 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22? 
1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brethren. That's why we purified our souls, so that we can show sincere love to each other. Let's rely on each other. Be honest with each other. Trust each other. That's why God gave us His family. Why are we afraid to make use of the family? And finally, and I know this is going to be the strangest lesson. Some of you probably, you just probably think that I'm way out in left field on this one, but this is something I just couldn't help think about. Is that Chris is not the lucky one. We are. I don't know how many times over the past week and a half that when I've talked to people and I've told them about the long, slow recovery, painful recovery that he's going to be had, that somebody, even Christian, says, well, it's better than the alternative. Or someone said, and I've even said, boy, he's just lucky to be alive. You know, I got to thinking about that. Christopher's a Christian. His sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, he's headed for heaven. And if when that van had run over him, it had just killed him instantly, he would have been carried by the angels to Abraham's side. If being stuck with a six-month-long recovery in a world soaked in sin with temptation around every corner really better than the alternative? Then I understand that having survived, he's lucky that he didn't lose his leg. Then I understand that having survived, he's lucky that they say he's going to have a full recovery. But brethren, come on. We're Christians. We need to have a better view of death than we've got usually. It is not something for us to be afraid of. Now I realize that, that we're the lucky ones. I'm lucky. My family's lucky. Christopher's friends are lucky because had he died, we would have gone through the grief and the trauma of another death and all that goes along with that. And that would have been hard and that would have been awful. And I'm frankly glad that we didn't have to go through that. And you know, it's not wrong for us to feel that way. Think about what Paul said about Epaphroditus in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, he said, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So it's okay to be relieved and thankful that he's still here. I mean, if Paul could be that way about Epaphroditus, I can be that way about Christopher. That's, that's okay. But think about what Paul said about his own possible death in Philippians 1, verse 21. Philippians 1, 21. For, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. As far as Paul was concerned, going and being with the Lord was the better alternative for him. But he understood that it was better for others for him to be able to continue in his work. That is not something for us to be afraid of. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They're not unlucky. They're blessed. We need to have that proper understanding of that. That is not something that we're trying to pursue. This is not some morbid interest in, in dying so we can get out of this world. That's not what, what it's talking about. And in fact, what we learn is that every day that God has given us, we use as a gift to serve and glorify Him. In fact, Revelation 14, 13, what does it say? Their deeds follow them. They get to rest from their labor. You know what that says about while we're still living in the Lord? That says it's time to work. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord because now they're getting to rest. Their deeds follow after them. That means right now, every day that we have to live, we get to work for the Lord. And so I guess there is a sense in which Christopher is lucky because now he has more opportunity to work for the Lord. And so death is not something that we pursue and chase down with some morbid interest. We're thankful for every day of life that we have because it's another day to glorify God and work for Him. But when death does come knocking on our door, or when death does knock on another Christian's door, it's not something for us to sit back and think, oh, how unlucky they are. Oh, how awful it is. The alternative was better. That's not the case. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. We need to have that view. Because if we are so stuck on this life, that we're afraid to die, then in the end, our death will probably not be a blessing. Chris wasn't the lucky one in this. We were. What have you learned? This week, I started a new, a new habit that I hope I'm disciplined enough to continue. I, I got myself a little notebook. It, 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 I actually got it several months ago back when I started the discipline of trying to journal every day, and I hoped then that I would have the discipline to do it, and I got like two pages filled. And so I decided, well, now I'll start something else. Here, maybe, maybe I can have the discipline to do this. Just to sit back and think every night, what, what life lessons did I learn today that I really need to hang on to and remember? Write them down. These experiences don't do us any good unless we evaluate them, unless we consider them, especially considering them in the light of God's Word. So I'm sure that as you think about it, there's probably some lessons that you've learned, and I'd be happy to hear those. But these are just some things that have helped me, and just some lessons that I've had re-impressed upon my mind over the past week and a half, and I hope that it's helped you. 